Hi, I'm Chris McBrien, a Gen Xer, and the pop culture from my generation is awesome. And I'm Yance Eaton, a millennial, and the pop culture from my generation is dope. Episode 61, Animal House Movie Review. Chris McBride here along with Yancey Eaton. It's Pop Goes Your World as always. Yancey, I want to mention we have some new friends and it's nice to have new friends. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. used, to, I'm used to people unfollowing me. So it's a, it's a novel thing when we get new friends <laughs> and our friends are over at the Chorus app and it's available on iPhone. It's in beta right now for Android devices. But what Chorus does, it allows you to listen to podcasts, but it adds a social element to it. So what you do is you go in and you can listen to podcasts. You can follow other podcast listeners You can recommend episodes to each other, discover new shows. And one of the coolest things is when you actually follow a podcast in the Chorus app, you get added to this community of that podcast where you can like meet the podcaster, you can give feedback and talk about the show and things like that. And, you know, podcasters like me and you, Yancey, we can jump in there and like do Q&As with people and stuff. So it's kind of cool. So it's Chorus, Mm -hmm. C-H-O-R-U-S. And while you're there, follow Pop Goes Your World. So, you know, nice. Yancey and I might even chat with you. You never know. And Yancey, speaking of you, how is my millennial co-host doing? Toga, toga. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wanted to get that into the intro so bad I didn't nice. know how to make it work. Um, oh, you did. Just speaking back off what you said, um, <laughs> Chorus, you just mentioned it to me before. They seem like some really, really cool guys doing something that's very, very cool, very original. We're not getting paid for it. These are just friends of the podcast. This is something that, um, you know, Chris has done before in the past is reaching out to people who, you know, are starting up something that has an idea that he likes. And it's just networking and it's, you know, us rubbing elbows with people who have like interests. And it seems like a really, really cool idea. You know, I listen to like over 100 podcasts myself. So, um, just something really, really cool. Uh, from a personal standpoint, uh, our store's back open. I just had a birthday. I'm 29 now, if you can believe it. Oh, man. An an, old, another old year. Man. Another year, <laughs> and you won't be able to trust yourself anymore. I know. I mean, it's it's crazy. I, I, I wake up, and I'm like, I'm almost 30. My mom actually yeah. called me and wished me a happy birthday, and she said, man, son, you're pushing 30. And that was the first time I've legitimately felt like – you know, immortality is like impossible. And like, you know, the end is near basically is when my mom said I'm pushing 30, but um, never, never trust anyone over 30, Yancey. No, never. No. Not even once. Mm-hmm. Not even once. But uh, other than that, I'm good. I'm, I'm ready to talk about this movie. It's uh, it's definitely a Chris McBride movie. So uh, mm, definitely is. <laughs> let's jump into it. Okay, let's go. I didn't see it back in 1984, obviously, because I wasn't born. There was basically one way for young teenage boys to see boobs. Oh, my. Chris, this is a hard endorse. Millennials can see boobs whenever they want. My least favorite movie that you have recommended for me to watch. The Love Boat. A movie that did not age particularly well. Back in the 70s and 80s, you know, Yancey. Frontal nudity. There was not the same level of grooming in hygiene that exists now. (laughs) Or topless women. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's my uncle up there. I am so proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. I think maybe I should try and watch a millennial show. Okay, so this week I, I nominated Animal House, the 1978 comedy classic. Uh, went to a couple of uh, drama movies there for a bit. Fell this time to go back to my roots, which you know how much I love those classic comedies from the 70s and 80s. So, Yancey, the last time I gave you a comedy was Revenge of the Nerds, and you absolutely hated it. So this time I gave you Animal House. I'm very curious to know. First impressions, what do you think? Uh, first impressions, not a big fan of the first half of it. Um, mm-hmm. Was completely disinterested. I was basically forced, like, hate watching it. Like, I was, I have to watch this for the podcast. Um, it did pick up for me, especially in the second act. And uh, overall, I think it's a decent movie. Um, I don't know how re- rewatchable it would be for me, but um, 
I, I, I did enjoy it, but not one of the favorite films of yours that you've uh, of the similar ilk of like the comedies. It's like it's not like Airplane. It's not Blazing Saddles where I was laughing the entire time out loud. Um, this is a little bit more reserved, but um, I don't know. I, I didn't appreciate it just as you know as, as much as some of the other films. It's it's so funny that you say that Animal House is reserved because that's sort of not really where, it's, where <laughs> it sits in the pantheon of things. Because basically when it came out in 78, it was the very first of its kind. It was the first sort of gross out college yep. comedy that there was there was no such thing as that and then it just led to a, a plethora of movies right into the 80s that were those kind of teen sex comedies the college comedies like revenge of the nerds and stuff like you know private lessons and fast times at ridgemont high all gave you know all owe their existence to animal house uh, when it came out but it's funny mm-hmm. that you say it's reserved because it was uh definitely sort of a gross out kind of comedy um I, I I'm surprised. I'm surprised you didn't, you didn't like. I guess you, you've always sort of liked more highbrow type things. I guess you know what I mean. I think it's I'm fair very, to say. I'm very, very, very polished, Chris. Yeah. I don't know if you do this or not. Yeah, well, it's not that. But I mean, you generally like more cerebral type uh, movies, cerebral type books, and music and that sort That's of thing. Fair. So I, I, I think I think it's true, and uh, so I can understand why you know maybe you didn't like this. One of the reasons why I like to nominate a lot of these movies too is I want you to understand kind of just the history of this stuff, you know, like where it comes from, why all those movies, why were there all those teen sex comedies in the 80s? This is why, because of this movie. It was so successful. When it came out in 78, it quickly became the highest grossing comedy of all time at the time. Oh, wow. And and some of the things that I liked about it were the fact that, like, like the music in it, for example. First of all, they had lots of great songs, I thought. It takes place in 1962, so there's a lot of 60s, you know, early 60s, late 50s music in it. But... The score, we've talked about the score in movies so much on this podcast in the past. And Mm -hmm. I love the score in this. They get Elmer Bernstein to score this movie. And it was funny because at the time, Landis wanted Bernstein to do it. And the studio didn't want it. They were like, no. Because he'd done stuff like To Killing Mockingbird and The Ten Commandments and stuff like that, right? So they're like, Mm -hmm. "We, we don't want him scoring this comedy. But Landis wanted him to score this movie like it was an epic drama. And just to, to, and that's exactly what he did, right? So when you listen, when you go back and listen to the score, you're like, whoa, actually, you know, maybe I didn't, it didn't sink in on, on the first time I saw it. And mm-hmm. they play it up like this, the big epic drama. And the whole point is that it it's sort of a juxtaposition to the absurdity of the comedy that's going on. And Landis continued to do this in other movies, like especially when you think of things like Spies Like Us and Trading Places, it kind of became a calling card of his. Of his directing style, you know, where he had this like great, you know, epic music going on in the back. So I don't know. So for that reason, it kind of sets it apart from all the other gross out comedies that followed. They didn't quite get that. And uh, but I found like the it's funny because you say in the first half of the movie, you found it to be kind of boring or slow or whatever. To me, when I go back and obviously I'm a huge fan of, you know, the comedy genre, especially from the 80s and the 70s. um, I find this one to be absolutely jam packed full of energy. And I think when you think of a lot of those Hollywood comedies that came out in the 80s, the big thing for me that they were lacking is they couldn't sustain that energy that you found in this movie. So I'm just surprised that you found mm-hmm. – I'm not surprised that you didn't like it. It's fine. You're a millennial and, you know, you don't like good stuff. It's just the way it is. It's all good. That's fair. That is <laughs> but, fair. <laughs> but I can, I, so I can understand why you didn't like this movie. It's not really your cup of tea. But I'm surprised that you would think it would lack 
energy because to me this movie is full of energy from the second it gets going they're walking on campus they're walking up to uh they, they go to the one they go to the omega house and they're like the stuffy guys they go over to the delta house and then there's like a keg of beer flying out the window there's a mannequin flying there's beer flying everywhere like it's just mm-hmm. it's out of control belushi's there like it's i'm really surprised that uh that you found the energy to be down i think I think I didn't do a good job of articulating exactly what I meant. I, I don't mean necessarily that the film itself is low energy. I think it's more so that um, I, it didn't have the effect on me that I think it warranted from other people. And as such, like I was kind of struggling to see kind of what the big deal was with a lot of the jokes. I think a lot of the problems that I have with this is kind of what we talked about with Revenge of the Nerds, where every single joke is – it's like the same handful of jokes they're like at the beginning of the of the of the movie whenever these guys are trying to pledge to this uh fraternity and they sit all basically like the nerds they sit them all on a couch like these guys don't even say anything there's no comedy in it the the comedy literally is that oh look it's an indian guy or it's a fat (laughs) guy you know what i mean like yeah (laughs) it's it's just like that racial trope or like they use they use gay slurs in this they use um you know blatant chauvinism and sexism and voyeurism and spying on girls and like I think I would have had more appreciation for this film if of the of the you know movies from this genre that you've introduced me to. If I had watched this first, I think I would have had more of an appreciation for it. Like you said, this was the one that kind of like broke through, and this was the first one that you know there was a lot of copycats and people paying homage to this later on. But because I saw this later, this just feels like a continuation of all those other movies, even though it was like you said the trendsetter itself. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And you got to kind of think of it of of where it fits in with things. It was the first. It was absolutely the first of its kind, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's harder for you if you've seen other ones since or previous to it. But, you know, you just got to keep in mind that, you know, where this kind of fits into the pantheon of things. So as a millennial, you brought up something that I think it's interesting to talk about. The scene where John Belushi, Bluto, goes up the ladder and is spying on the girls that are having mm-hmm. a pillow fight. And then, you know, Mandy Pepperidge goes into the other room, right? And he kind of moves the ladder over and, and he, so he can see her. And because, I mean, his character is basically a walking id, right? He likes to drink, eat, look at girls like he's just this walking id. Right. As a millennial, how offensive is that scene? Is it Because you were saying, like, it's voyeuristic. It's like what he's doing, he should be thrown in jail for. Right. And at I the mean, time, people just laughed at it, right? It's to- totally I, different I, times. There's like this there's this whole culture of enablement and when it when it comes to like you know boys will be boys like college guys like oh that's just how they are but like in all seriousness like it really is like sexual harassment or sexual assault or like maybe i'm just being programmed because you know this is the culture that i'm i've grown up in now where i'm more aware of of like how the actions and like the things you say affect other people around you and i'm not saying this is like an indictment on past generations because society moves one way and that's forward you know what i mean so um if everything were okay now as it was 20 30 years ago like what are we doing as a society you know what i mean so i i don't i'm not like you know, holding it against people who who found that kind of humor funny. In 50 years, people are going to look back at my generation and think that we're a bunch of, you know, complete oafs, basically. But um, in mentioning that scene, like, one of the first things I noticed was, like, you know, so he walks up to the house. There's no explanation what he's doing or anything like that. He just walks up to this sorority house. Yep. And, and conveniently enough, there is a large ladder <laughs> right there in front. You know, he doesn't even have to search for it. There's just a ladder, and he's going to grab this ladder. He's going to go up it. To his credit, I, I think one of the things that makes Belushi so effective is he is able to um, do so much with almost no dialogue. Oh, yeah. At, 
at the beginning I was almost frustrated because I felt like they weren't utilizing him enough that he was just like the ogre. He was just like the stupid moron. You know what I mean? Like the drinking, yeah. blabbering moron. Pours but mustard did, on himself. Yeah, just for no reason. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it was it was sitting like a trope. At, I that I felt just, sorry. I just love that scene. He's sitting at the, at the toga party for no reason at all. Just grabs a thing of jar of mustard and just pours it on his chest. Right. Like, it's, that's so that's who he is. Yeah. But I, I will say like with that scene, you know, like I said, it, it feels like Corky or what, yeah. what's the movie? Is it Porky's or Corky? I can't remember. Um, it feels like Revenge of the Nerds where it's like, well, we have to have a couple scenes with girls topless in here. Like, we have to. You know what I mean? And maybe now, just because I grew up in the internet age and we've touched on this on past episodes, I don't get excited about seeing a girl topless in a movie. Um, like I said, that that comes with a whole different you know, amount of social adjustment that I've seen just because all that stuff is readily available to me. Like, I can Google anything right now and I can see whatever I want, right? Yeah. That's just how it is. So, like, that doesn't have an effect on me. That doesn't add anything to the movie to me. I'm not saying, like, it's, it, oh, my God, breasts are terrible. Women's bodies are disgusting. I'm not saying that. But, like, that's not funny to me. Like, it doesn't add an element of of humor or comedy to me. I did enjoy, like, him, like you said, like, basically, like, I don't know, trugging, like, along, like, to see her. And the fact that she's looking out and doesn't see him. Nobody <laughs> hears this gigantic, you know, 250-pound man, like, bam, you know, banging a ladder yeah. against the – it's absurd. You know? It's and absurd. That that's the whole point. I do appreciate it. And um, I wanted to touch on this whenever you, the, the first thing that you had said was um, talking about how like this is super high energy and everything. Yeah. I read a really, really interesting review from Roger Ebert whenever this movie first came out. And he was very, very high on it. And uh, he just talks about I'll read one line in this because I think it, sure. first, like, it perfectly encapsulates what he's talking about. He says, the mo- this movie is incredibly vulgar. It's raunchy. It's ribald, which I've never even heard of that word. But he also talks about how it deals with the, uh, the cheerfully wretched excess and an ability to re- to reproduce the most revealing nuances of human behavior. And whenever I read that, I was like, okay, so I'm, I'm starting to see what this movie is trying to do, where it's taking these individual elements of things that, like, you think you know about nerds, or you think you know about, like, drunks at a party, or, you know, uptight teachers, or the liberal arts professor at college, you know what I mean? And it exaggerates them to such a high level of, of excess that... It's just making fun of them. You know what I mean? It's taking one little thing and it magnifies it, you know, so hyperbolically. And whenever I heard that, I kind of started to see back on certain scenes that didn't make sense to me. And I had a newfound appreciation for them, like that scene, you know, in the sorority house or whatever. Yeah. And then just to just building on that, like, you know, that scene, obviously he goes up, he's looking at the girls. And obviously this isn't to say this is a millennial versus Gen X thing because it's not like it. what he's doing is wrong. You know, absolutely. You know what he's doing is wrong. You can't go and do that. But, right. you know, again, it's played for comedy. And if, and, and you, you could make the point that, well, you know, he does pay a consequence for doing that because he falls backward. Right. Remember, it you know, gets crushed, right? So, right, I mean, so that's, there that's is... Almost, that's almost like a cop-out, not to cut you off, but mm-hmm. it's like a cop-out because, like you said, you know that it's morally reprehensible, but right. the movie never addresses that. Like, all these guys, they do all of these things. You know, they're, like I said, they're basically, like, assaulting people. Like, the we're, we're, I can't remember the name of the character, but he's at lunch with the girl. I think her name was Babs or something. And he's just constantly like oh come on come on come on and she's like no really no he's like how about i just like grab your thigh like me like i'm like that that makes the hair stand up on the back of my Mm -hmm. neck like i'm so i'm so not into that but like it's just totally okay you know what i mean like it's it's very very normal within that film and it's never addressed as being sleazy you can look back on it now and say that it is but it's never addressed but what what point were you making before i rudely cut you off Uh, no no i think it was just the just the fact that there was consequences of of belushi's actions and that so i'm curious to know if you were offended by that if you were offended by other things there was the scene, the scene when when they go to the all girl sorority, if you remember, and Otter goes in there to meet uh, Fawn. Remember, he reads in the newspaper and he sees that there's a the girl has died. 
Yes. So, so he goes into the sorority and says, hey, I'm here to see Fawn. And then they're like, oh, oh my, oh, you don't know? And then they call down her roommate, right? And then he's like, you know, he's, he goes, Where, where's Fawn? What's going on? And then she's like, you know, she's dead. And then she gives him the newspaper article and he like reads it and it's like, girl kill or teen you know killed in kiln accident or something he's like oh no she was gonna make a pot for me yeah and then she like he starts playing it up and like and then she feels sympathy toward him and then he's like oh, i just don't want to be alone she's like oh I'll, I'll, okay i'll be with you well could you also get four dates from my friends like that's yeah. like what did they like was that offensive like how bad was that like um i i i think offensive is the wrong word i like I don't personally get offended by anything. I think people who are quick to be offended um, that there's like a self-esteem issue there. You know what I mean? Where like you're tr- you're constantly trying to like assert yourself and your worth and letting people know that things bother you. It's just it's like extreme sensitivity on that part. For me, it's more like I'm I'm disappointed and I feel bad for other people who might feel disenfranchised watching a movie. And again, I'm not trying to sound like a social justice warrior, guys. Like I use like you know swear words and I say I say bad shit too all the time. But like in a public forum like this, like. Imagine being like the Indian guy that goes and watches a movie and there is just like a well-dressed Indian guy sitting on a, on a chair and like the joke is that he's Indian. Who would want him in the fraternity? You know what I mean? Or just like being like a woman and knowing that like n- none of these guys ever take you seriously. Like that's kind of where I, I find issue with it. I did think it was incredibly clever though that he would literally look in the paper and see that somebody died and then just use that as his in to pick up girls. Like that's next level like sociopathic like oh, yeah. sexual predator but it is incredibly, incredibly clever. See, one of the things I like about this movie too is the fact that you know we've talked about how it's offensive and this and that and, and and these guys are reprehensible and awful people but it really at the heart of it two things kind of stand out for me one is the acting in it i think i think there's really good actors in this movie tom hulse and donald sutherland karen allen even tim matheson and of course the late great john belushi of course but the performances in this movie i think are what sets it apart than just being a regular gross out comedy like mm-hmm. and the characters themselves you know going back to what we were saying about how some of them are offensive and doing these awful things but the characters any good movie needs great characters to motivate the story obviously yeah and yeah. you've got these guys like bluto and otter and like flounders like the overweight guy and and even like pinto you know he's that naive virgin and even though there's a lot of anarchy in this movie, and I really think that's the key word when I think of Animal House, I think of anarchy. You mm-hmm. know, I think there's a lot of anarchy in the movie, but for me, I think it's all grounded in a lot of innocence as well because of some of these characters. Like, I don't know if you got that out of it or not. I definitely didn't get an innocence to it. Um, it, it I do like what you're talking about as far as anarchy goes. One of the notes that I wrote was talking about how there is, this is literally what I wrote verbatim. I said, where is the continuity? Where is the flow? The scenes don't tie into each other and there's zero explanation. The transitions are clunky. These are the notes that I wrote myself. Like I'm trying to figure out what's going on with this movie. And that's not necessarily like a knock on the movie. It's just, I'm used to a certain set of movie making and like this completely breaks the mold. And to its credit, like it does it pretty well. Like people love this movie. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm not a lover of it, but like you said, they just do it so well. They're throwing stuff at you. They don't take time to set up scenes. They don't take time to explain everything. And that's actually like weirdly refreshing that it's just like, here's a movie. Here are things that are happening. Look at it. You know what I mean? You don't need to know the entire backstory or where they're going or how they got here to enjoy it. Just enjoy it for what it is. Was there any scenes in the movie that stand out to you that you liked? Um, there are. I especially enjoyed the music of this. Like, there's you, some you good music. The yeah, there, there really is some is. very, very, very good music. Um, let me see my notes real quick. Give me one second. Songs I like love Louis, Louis, and shout and tossing and yes. turn and twisting the night away. All those songs, right? 
those songs are incredible. I, I especially love Donald Sutherland's uh, Professor. <laughs> I wish he was so much more in that. Like, the, you know, when he's talking about, uh, uh, I can't even remember the the author's name, but he's talking Milton. about him. How he's like, nope, nobody, nobody yeah. likes Milton. Yeah. He's like, to be completely honest with you, he's a little bit long winded. It doesn't translate well to our gen- our generation, and our jokes are terrible. That literally feels like half the movies that you recommend to me. So like it was like a perfect <laughs> it was like a perfect just, you know, facsimile of everything that you and I go through back and forth and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I know you feel the same way, too. But I laughed. I, I think one of the two or three times where I audibly laughed out loud was whenever, you know, the the class is dismissed or they just start leaving. And he, he starts talking about, you know, make sure you get your homework done or your research paper or something. He's like, I'm not joking. This is my job. Yeah. Like <laughs> he can, has no control. Feel- the desperation, yeah, exactly. know how nobody takes him seriously. I just love that character. I, I would have loved to have seen him fleshed out more. Um, it, it was interesting that you know he's like hooking up and like smoking pot with like you know basically you know freshmen, you know mm-hmm. straight you know kids straight out of high school and stuff. But um, I love that a lot. I, like I said, I love the dance sequences. The ending, uh, much like Blazing Saddles, did not expect the ending at all. I thought it was going to go a certain way where like the kids redeem themselves and then you know like they have like a falling in with like the you know administration and everybody takes them back and it's all hunky dory. When in actuality, no, they blow up. It becomes complete anarchy, and I really really enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, no, absolutely. And just like, yeah, like you said, instead of it being wrapped up, then they things are going to go good and they, they win in the end. Well, really, they got kicked off campus. So they decided, OK, let's go out with a bang, <laughs> you know, yep. and that's what they yep. did. Um, so another scene that I'm curious to know what you thought of when they went to the Dexter Lake Club. OK, so remember Otis Day in the night? Otis Day and Nights comes to the toga party and he's playing there yep. and so they're having a great time they're like yeah Otis and then they go out on, on that road trip when they go and get those girls from the sorority and then they take them out on a date and they go to the Dexter Lake Club and they see the sign Otis Day and the Nights and they're like Otis hey Otis loves us and they walk in there and then it's just I'm just curious <laughs> what your what your take as a millennial on that whole thing goes because it's so funny because they get in there and then they're like the music stops and then they're like we're the only white people here and then, then yep. the otter goes, we are going to die. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and, then, and then the music starts again. And, and I love when Flounder goes up to the bar because he's just such a goof. And he's like, what school do you go to? And the guy just pulls a switchblade. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then, of course, I, he goes, do you mind if we dance with your dates? And then the, and the other guy's like, if if I were in your shoes, I'd be, I'd be leaving. And they get up and they leave the girls there. <laughs> and, the guys, and then they get in the car. And then this, the thing I'm curious to know too if this offends you they're, they're driving away and flounders like the negroes took our dates i'm like i wonder what your take on this whole scene was like as a millennial like was it too much was it what was going on what i felt like it, it was funny um that's one of those where like you you look around first before you start laughing you know what i mean right. like i don't want to see people that i'm laughing but like you know, it did kind of portray like black people as, I don't know, almost as like animals. You know what I mean? Like there's something to be feared. Like just the fact that they're black and you walk into a black establishment, what are they going to like steal from you or rob you or something? They're not going to like, you know, beat the hell out of you just because you're there. And a little and, story and a little thing that they snuck into that scene, too, because he says to the girl, what are you majoring in? And she's like primitive cultures. Yes. So yes. so really racially charged scene. And that's why I want to know what your take on this is. Yeah, that that was another like, you know, the hair stands up on the back yeah. of my neck kind of thing. And I was like, wow, that's man, that kind of sucks. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. 
I, I don't like how that depiction was, but I did I did think that it was done well. I did think that it was you know kind of funny how they presented it, and you know uh, all of the the black people. Uh, I, I sound so derogatory, the black people, but like the the actors playing those parts, whatever, they all seem to kind of sell it pretty well. You know what I mean? Just like playing up the fact that like oh you know black people are quote unquote mysterious or you know whatever. But it was a weird scene. There's lots of scenes like that, Chris, where as soon as they say it, like I'm like I said, I've I've been trained to like spot out like this socially reprehensible behavior, and I was like like, wow, I, I see where it's funny. I see what they were doing. Um, and I know you're going to ask this too. Like we always ask um, those same types of jokes. I don't think would land nearly as well today. And as no. such, I don't think this movie would be made in the exact same light. No, as I don't, I don't think it would. I don't think it would either. Um, just mentioned Otis Day and the Knights, by the way, that was, uh, it, what, his name wasn't even Otis Day. His name was Dwayne Jesse. And he just lip synced everything in that, in those scenes. And then what happened was, the the movie was so popular. He went out on. I think he. I'm not. If I'm not mistaken, he still tours to this day as Otis Day on the Nights, making music and playing gigs. You know, you're actually like you've taken off like half of my trivia questions oh, so I'm sorry. far. <laughs> we do this every week. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, so I'm just trying to think of some other scenes that I really like, or even some some of the because to me one of my favorite things of these kind of movies is just the quotes that come out of them, and mm. like I. Like again, going back to um, to flounder, you guys playing cards, like just stuff like that. I like, like yes, yeah. I liked when uh, when uh, Bluto's trying to rile everybody up at the end. He's like, "Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor?" And they're like, "Germans." He's like, "Yeah, he's on a roll. Just leave him." And uh, one of my favorite lines from the whole movie is the scene. Remember the scene when when the dean brings them in. And he's got mm-hmm. all four of them there, and he's going through their, he's going through their grades. He's like, he's like, uh, Mr. Kroger, you've got like a one point two grade point. Congratulations, you're at the top of your class. Everyone's like, oh, congratulations, <laughs> way to go! It is like so bad. And he's like, Daniel Simpson Day has no grade point average. Yeah. All courses are incomplete, and of course, Blutarski is like zero point zero. But my favorite line in that scene is when he looks at Flounder and he goes, "Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son." And so what? <laughs> Me and my buddies have always said that before. We use that over and over again. I don't know. Oh, man. And what about the scene, too? I'm just asking you about offensive stuff. The scene when Kroger goes and he remember he's at the food mart and they're stealing the food and then he meets the girl that's working there and then he invites her to the party and she comes to the party and she has too much to drink and he takes her up to um, Boone. I think it's Boone's room. or mm-hmm. And then he gets her alone and then she says, uh, he goes like, I lied to you. I've never done this before. And she goes, I lied to you too. I'm only 13. And then she passes yes. out. And then the devil of the, the <laughs> like, like how offensive of a scene was that for you? What? Just, well, that whole those, scene, like, like what's going on in that scene? I, I, I think you're fusing two scenes together, aren't you? Because like he said, he finds out that she's 13 later whenever they're on the football field laying down, right? Oh, that's and right. The, that's right. The, the first scene. Yeah. yeah. The first scene where like he like was going to like, no, he didn't know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Again, same same story. I'm like, please don't tell me that this yeah. guy is gonna like go ham on him. Like, please, like, you know, for for like the comedic stakes at it. Like, I was almost afraid that they'd be like, ah, oh, screw it, just like grab her boobs or something. Like, and I was like, oh man, I really hope that this isn't. But well, that's to, what the devil to said credit, to him to do. Remember? Yeah, yeah. And then he said, then he has like another like Gaysler, like calling him like a homo because yeah, like he's exactly. not gonna like sexually objectify a 13 year old girl as she's sleeping. You know, so yeah, I mean, offensive. there's there's a lot of really borderline stuff on here. Like I said, um. I, I hate to sound like the morality police or anything like that, but a lot of that stuff was so distracting. I wish I wish this movie could have been redone um, without all of that kind of stuff and like make real jokes about individual characters, like flesh out these characters, give them more dialogue. Like don't just let a, a character like his whole essence being that he's fat. You know what I mean? And that's that's all the jokes you're going to make is that he's fat or that this person is Indian or that person is gay. You know, like. 
I, that that's a part that I think is just um, it's not necessarily that it's never funny. It's just I don't think it's very creative. You know what I mean? And I think that these people have shown that they can be so much more creative than that. Well, and that's one of the cool things about doing this podcast is watch going back and having you watch all these old movies through a millennial's eyes and go, whoa, 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 this isn't cool. And and again, keep in mind, I'm not saying that it is cool that these things are cool, but it's you need to understand kind of where where these kind of comedies came from, kind of. Yep. What was acceptable at the time and what people laughed at is different than what they laugh at now. And that's what makes this podcast so good to me. Um, a couple of things you mentioned, the things that, you know, that offended you or whatever, just some things that are in the movie. But there's a couple of things that didn't make the movie, you know, that were even that didn't make it past the censors. They had to cut out. Well, one of the things not from the censors, but, you know, D-Day. Remember Daniel Simpson Day? Um, mm-hmm. D-Day was originally supposed to be played by Dan Aykroyd. He was cast oh, wow. in that part. Yeah. And, uh, and, but Dan Aykroyd didn't want to do it because him and Belushi were both doing Saturday Night Live. In 1978, the show was as popular as hell, right? And they're on top of the world doing that show. And Belushi got offered to do this movie. It was his first movie to do, right? And Dan Aykroyd didn't want to take anything away from Belushi. You know what I mean? Like he didn't want to, like, he wanted to give Belushi his chance to, to shine in this movie and didn't want to kind of overshadow him in any way by being in the movie with him or being a distraction. So he turned it down. Um, but a couple of things that didn't make it in the movie. So there was one scene where they had a bonfire. It wasn't in the, in the movie. And the guy puts the bonfire out by actually throwing up on it. And the censors were like, yeah, that's not going in the movie. And the other scene, remember at the end when they had the parade and one of the floats was John F. Kennedy. I don't know if you noticed it was a John F. Kennedy head. And one of the scenes is it's going down the road and they shoot a, um, a beer keg. I don't know how it gets shot somehow and it goes through the head of the float right at the oh, at the point of impact where he got I did shot. see that but I yeah. I interpreted that as like they they crashed the float and I thought that that was the fire hydrant coming out from underneath it, it but maybe it, it was maybe it, was, it, it was the scene that got cut out that they wanted to put in was a beer keg going through that oh, float okay, okay. at the point of impact where he got shot and they were like no no you can't do that. there's no <laughs> way so it's not all the things made it in the movie uh but th- what did make it in the movie? Kevin Bacon is his first movie. I don't know if you if you knew that or not, but uh, I did not know that. No, yeah, that was his, his first movie credit he ever did. Yeah, I like Donald Sutherland in it, and Ivan Reitman. I got to give a shout out to him because really a lot of this movie is based on his days at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, and um, yeah, I don't know. I there's a there's a lot that we could still talk about with the movie. There's you know so much going on with it. To me, it's the fact that it was very it was seminal. You know, in terms of, you know, Belushi and Tim Matheson and Karen Allen and, and, and people like that. Tom Hulse even went on to Amadeus. So it was a seminal movie and it was also a very influential movie. It, it, to me, it changed the, the, the landscape of Hollywood comedies. And for that reason, it's an important movie, as crazy as that sounds, because it was so influential. And like I said, at the time, it was the highest grossing comedy of all time when it came out. So mm. for all those reasons, I felt it was important for us to look at it. Yes, times have changed. Yes, it's not acceptable. Half the stuff that went on the movie wasn't acceptable back then either, you know, but it really isn't, you know, now. And and I agree with you on a lot of stuff, but I it's that's why we talk about these things on the podcast, right? I completely agree. I think that's well put. I Once again, I just want to reiterate, Chris, like I'm not, like while I find some of the stuff reprehensible, like I, it, it's not an indictment on an entire generation. Like you said, things were completely different. And I know looking forward, whenever people look back at our generation, they're going to think that 
everything that we think is just completely normal is going to be totally taboo then. So, like I said, not trying to be like the morality police. It's just it is it, it takes away from me from a little bit. And I would I would love to see this movie remade and with the same comedic geniuses and just without all that extra stuff. But overall, I think it was uh, it was an interesting movie. Um, not one of my favorites. Definitely not one of the favorites that you've recommended me as far as comedy goes. But um, I do see the merits to why it is, you know, so famous after all these. years. One of the other things, too, is uh, remember Niedermeyer from the Omega House, right? And mm-hmm. I don't know if you recognize him, Mark Metcalf as the actor. He was in uh, Seinfeld. Remember, he was Bob Cobb, yes. the, ma- the maestro. Yes. And I mentioned this in a previous podcast, one of our first podcasts, so I don't know if you remember this, but <clears throat> John Landis likes to tie his movies together. And for those of us that love John Landis's movies, well, you know, we see this. But so at the end of this movie, remember at the end of the parade when everything, all all hell's breaking loose, all anarchy is going crazy. And then at the very end, they're showing what happens to the characters. Remember, they do screenshots and they're like, you know, um, Senator and Mrs. John Blutarski. Yes. You know, and all these things like, you know. <laughs> or killed in Vietnam by his own troops. That, yeah, that's what they said about <laughs> Niedermeyer, right? He was killed in Vietnam by his own troops. Then when John Landis made in, in 1983, he made um, uh, uh, Twilight Zone, the movie. He he made he 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 was a director of one of the scenes in that movie, and the scene in that movie that he directed was the the infamous scene with uh, Morrow, Vic Morrow, and these two Vietnamese children that he grabbed and was running through the the swamp, and the helicopter crashed and killed the the three of them while they were doing the scene. Landis never recovered; his career never recovered really anything after that. But um, the interesting thing is, at the beginning of that scene, if you watch Twilight Zone the movie. There's a bunch of guys walking through the swamp and they're American soldiers and they say, one guy turns to the other guy and goes, man, we shouldn't have killed Captain Niedermeyer back there. And it's just a throwaway line, but it's like, ah, oh, a little tie into Animal House. Anyway, just thought I'd mention Very interesting. That. Yeah, very, very interesting. cool. But uh, yeah, anyway, so, you know, it is what it is. I, I thought there was, you know, some merits to the film, uh, obviously, uh, like I say, where it kind of fits in the pantheon of things and some things hold up and some things definitely don't hold up. That's for sure. But mm-hmm. uh, are you ready to, to throw some trivia at me on this movie? Yep. Fun with Yancey. We're going to have to power through this, guys. My laptop's at 4%. It's about to shut off. So if okay. it cuts out weirdly, that's why. Um, no problem. Right, so like I mentioned, you uh, mentioned you always cut off my trivia questions. Like you know so much about the films that it makes it really difficult for me yeah, to sorry. do trivia on them, uh, such as life. But really, really quickly, like I said, we're going to power through these. Uh, so what is the motto of Favorite College? Oh, knowledge is good. Knowledge is good, yes. Yep. That's like my new favorite thing. Uh, you mentioned John Lannis, the director. Can you name how many directorial credits he has to his name? Oh, cheapers. I don't know. I'd say 12. 44. Actually. Oh, wow. He has that many. Holy shit. Yeah, my favorite number. And uh, he's been part of some of the greatest movies of all time. Like, I was looking through his credits. I was like, wow, this guy oh, yeah. really knows his stuff. Oh, yeah. uh, sadly, he has also been nominated for three Razzie Awards, which are given to bad movies. Yes. And uh, he was nominated three times for Worst Director for three different films. Can you name any of the films? I'll say The Stupids. The Stupids is definitely one. Yeah. Want to take a stab? Um, I'll take a stab, and I will say that maybe they gave it to him for Beverly Hills Cop 3. Definitely correct. You're two for two. Mm, and the last one? Last one that he would have done. Again, it would be a recent one. I don't know. Uh, it's Oscar. A 1991 film Oscar I've never oh, heard of. No, nah, I don't even know that one. Nice huh. job, though. Two out of three is not bad. Yeah, not bad. Uh, you referenced Kevin Bacon. Can yes. you name his character's full name? Wasn't it Chip Diller? Yep, Diller. How do you yeah. know this? <laughs> I, I like this movie a lot. Sorry. Okay. Uh, like I said, I had 10. The other ones I had to cut off just because you answered them all. Uh, the last one, Babs Jansen, the character is played by Martha Smith. Yeah. Uh, she also has a ton of IMDb credits to her name, and I did not realize she has done so much work, but she was also famously a Playboy Playmate of the Month in July of what year? Oh, geez. I'd say right around that time. So I will go with 1979. It was actually 1973. Oh, wow. 
Yep. I, I expect you the to have thing, it like pinned up in yeah, your wall or no, something. No, the thing that I liked about her was at the end of the movie, then she ends up working for Universal Studios as a tour guide. Yeah. But the thing is, if you stay through the entire credits of the movie, the, if you watch all the credits, the credits roll at the very end. A, Spoiler, a, I did not. <laughs> a, 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 thing, a thing comes up at the very end that says Universal Studios, come for the tour, ask for Babs. Oh, wow. That's and cool. Then, yeah. That's a nice little tie-in there. Kind of a little tie-in, anyway. Um, so, yeah, anyways, listen, uh, we got to wrap things up. We got to go, that's for sure. Next week, we're going to come back, and we are going to do the new Star Wars film, Yancey. We're going to come back mm-hmm. next episode. We're going to talk about Star Wars The Last Jedi. Until then, make sure you reach out to us on Twitter, at Brian or at Yancey Eaton. For Yancey, whose laptop is going to be going away to nothing in Hurry. any second. Out. <laughs> <laughs> for Yancey Eaton, this is Chris McBride saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thank you for listening to the Pop Goes Your World podcast. Continue the conversation on Twitter at C. McBrien or at Yancey Eaton. Please consider leaving a review for the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. Music.